Listener Production. Hey there, Ben Sion Siebert with your afternoon briefing. Neo-Nazis. They celebrate the birthday of Adolf Hitler. They believe white people are superior to all others. They want to see a race war in Australia. New South Wales police shut down a neo-Nazi demonstration in Sydney over the Australia Day long weekend. Late last month, a group of masked men marched through Ballarat, northeast of Melbourne, chanting, Australia is for the white man. And earlier last year, about 30 men from the National Socialist Network, or NSN, marched in front of the Victorian Parliament during an anti-trans rally, repeatedly performing the Nazi salute. Each of these events raises the question, exactly how worried should we be about literal Nazis in Australia right now? Well, Nick McKenzie is an investigative reporter with the Nine Newspapers. In fact, he's Australia's most decorated investigative journalist, having won the highest honour a journalist can receive in this country, the Walkley Award, 16 times. Working as an investigative reporter here at Listener myself, I hope it doesn't embarrass him to say that he is one of my absolute journalism heroes. Anyway, Nick's investigative work on neo-Nazis is one of the big reasons we know quite a lot about them in Australia. He joins me now. Nick, how big is the neo-Nazi movement in this country and how worried should we be about it? Well, we can see uh, from the recent activities in Sydney that uh, at any one time, at least 60 mostly young males who are prepared to, to sometimes travel ac- across the country uh, to meet and to meet very publicly and, and to and try to gain a big propaganda uh, advantage for their group. And if, if there's 60 willing to do that, then we can double that figure to those who, who didn't come but don't pre- pre- feel prepared to, to stick their necks out in such a way. So we're talking about a, a couple of hundred uh, members thereabouts. Ultimately, that's a small number. Uh, and if we weigh the potential for this group to do harm, we've got to keep it into perspective. Uh, There was no acts of of significant violence in New South Wales. The police did do a good job, I think, in deterring and disrupting uh, the group's activities. What it did achieve was a a lot of publicity, which I think was truly its aim. And from there, it will get more recruits, more attention and and more fundraising. Do we believe it's capable of of engaging in an act of, well, what's what we all fear, terrorism? Well, I mean, that's clearly a risk, but it's a small risk. So you had that interview with Mike Burgess, the head of ASIO, a few years ago, and he was quite concerned about this at the time. What's your understanding about how this has changed? Well, the the group continues to adapt to law enforcement attention, intelligence services attention, media attention. Uh, They they learn from their mistakes. So a couple of years ago, they weren't on the radar. We put them... uh, I guess, uh, on the public radar. And now we, we infiltrated the group with an undercover operative. We exposed the group for who they were, which was largely a disorganised, uh, fledgling and pretty pathetic, often neo-Nazi group, led by a couple of pretty, according to its members, charismatic guys that were seeking to grow. They had some, some significant aspirations a couple of years ago, one of them being they wanted to set up a regional training facility or, or and ideally a regional community, they called it a white ethno state, where they would grow their group and, and uh, hopefully achieve their quite outlandish aims. Have they done that? No. Uh, so some time has passed. They're still getting members. They're probably 
slightly bigger, I think, in terms of membership than they were a couple of years ago, but but not a great deal. So they're still struggling to have a, a true impact. They haven't really uh, realised their aspirations or aims. Uh, there is no a change in politics. The society at large still looks at neo-Nazis as an abhorrent stain on our society. They're, they're, they continue to be a niggling presence in our society. Yes, we should be alarmed, but not too alarmed. Yes, we should condemn them, but we shouldn't overstate their presence or the threat they pose. Obviously, uh, the ideas that neo-Nazis promulgate are intensely awful ideas. What do you think it is that is appealing to some, particularly men, in these groups that are attracted to this idea, white supremacy, for example? I mean, the classic sort of person who joins the NSN is a lost soul, someone looking for a brotherhood, looking for to join a tribe or a community. We've seen guys who've got out of youth detention, you know, young people who've been in, in locked up. It gives them a sense of belonging and brotherhood. Uh, guys who don't fit in at school or struggle to find a job, struggle to get into university, suddenly this gives them purpose, meaning in their life. When you consider that, you begin to understand that the leaders of this group, led by Thomas Sewell and Jacob Hassan, they prey on vulnerable people. And they themselves were, in the case of Hassan, a, a loner and an outlier who found brotherhood and meaning through this group. And so those that join the group want to have a sense of, of something uh, that they're doing in their life. And when you understand that, you begin to understand, well, how do we de-radicalise them? It's going to be about giving them a sense of purpose in other parts of their life, to draw them away from the group and to understand that really joining a neo-Nazi group is a descent into, uh, you'll end up without a job, you'll end up in, engaging in an act of violence, you'll end up in jail uh, and you'll end up in a racist misery. So after that neo-Nazi demonstration on the weekend, the New South Wales Premier, Chris Minns, said that he wanted to unmask those involved and expose them publicly as racists. As you've mentioned, you have revealed personally the identity of neo-Nazis. What does that kind of unmasking do? We wait up very carefully who we should unmask when we did do a very significant sort of unmasking of members of the group and who we should not. So, for instance, there's a couple of young neo-Nazis. We decided, even though we, we identified who they were, either because of their age or because of their prospects for rehabilitation or de-radicalisation, we decided we wouldn't identify them. Others we did identify. Uh, in some cases, it's an immediate loss of job. Uh, they were outed in their communities. They were ashamed. Uh, one of them, a guy who lived in, in Warrnambool uh, in country Victoria, uh, after being exposed, actually said, listen, I regret my actions. I'm turning away from this movement. And I apologize to the community for the harm I've done. I realized the, the error of my ways. But naming and shaming can also have the consequence of drawing someone further into the group, giving them no chance to to reintegrate into society. So you've got to weigh it up really carefully. What would you say to someone who would argue that uh, by exposing and I suppose providing a platform for the fact of these groups, the media is contributing in some way to their growth or development? Well, the media has a really important role to play. We need to cast a light and shine a light on these groups and expose their activities, expose their senior leadership, expose their methodology uh, and ensure that our society 
respond in an appropriate way. We can't simply ignore the rise of, of far-right extremism. That would be grossly irresponsible. And yet we cannot also play into their desire, these groups' desire for propaganda and for publicity because they need propaganda and publicity to achieve their, they think to achieve their political aims, to recruit and to fundraise, etc. cetera. Uh, so for me, it's about reporting in a really responsible way. And what we really tried to do was to demystify. So they, they want the, the public to see them as, a, as an organised and attractive, appealing group that has yeah. a winning purpose uh, and will make your life better if you join. We, we sought to, to actually rip that propaganda away and expose them for who they were, a pathetic, disorganised, shambolic. Their, their political ideology is, is incoherent and their racism is disgusting and pathetic. If we do that sensibly and carefully, uh, I think it's a real aid uh, to, to society and, and it's part of educating Australia as to what these groups truly are and educating future recruits as to why not to join. The laws around this are different depending on which state that you're in, like, for example, the use of Nazi symbols like the swastika, whether or not you can do the Sikh Heil. What do you think of the current state of laws around the country and is there more that that should be done? Um, more laws are not necessarily the answer. I think we look at these suite of laws be it banning a, a Nazi salute or requiring somebody who wears a balaclava to, to take it off and, and to be unveiled as part of a, of a toolbox of certain things our authorities can draw on uh, sensibly and carefully to disrupt and deter, but they're not a, a solution. And, you know, laws are only as good as, as how they're used and applied. And really what we need more than anything is our authorities to be coming up with a sensible, sustainable whole of society approach. The police could have all the laws in the in the world if they overuse them or use them poorly or don't use them, you might have a whole range of consequences. But even then, we require our schooling system, our political system, our civil society groups, etc., to also play a role, parents, to play a role in fighting far-right extremism and fighting racism. The police alone can't be responsible, intelligence agencies alone can't be responsible for eradicating or, or combating this problem. Uh, so when you start to talk like that, you realise actually it's quite a challenge. I mean, how do we bring programs into schools to stop a 13-year-old joining up when he turns 16? How do we educate from a young age? Now, this stuff's less sexy for the politicians to talk about and more complicated, requires funding uh, and, and a really sustainable approach. A new law that can ban a seagull, yeah, that can be put in overnight, uh, and it makes us all perhaps feel good, uh, but how long-term will that uh, effect be of, of the enforcement of, of that law? The fact is, if we, for instance, prohibit the NSN, if we make it illegal to join the National Socialist Network, they'll simply regroup under a new name, and law enforcement will be chasing its tail. You, know, you prohibit a group, it dissolves, reforms. These groups are highly adaptable. They're, they're very, very clever when it comes to counter-surveillance and dealing with law enforcement, or can be clever. So we need deeper and more strategic ways to deal with them. Well, thanks so much for your time, Nick. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Investigative journalist Nick McKenzie there. That's all we have time for on today's afternoon briefing. Sash and the morning briefing team will be back in your feeds from 6am tomorrow. The afternoon edition comes out at 3 every afternoon. And we're always looking for your feedback and suggestions for the show. Search The Briefing Podcast on Instagram, hit follow and send us a DM. 
I'm Ben Sion Siebert. Thanks for listening. Listener.